Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Gennady Druzenko, a constitutional lawyer, politician, and activist from Ukraine, where war led by Russian-backed separatists has been going on since 2014. Shortly after that conflict began, Gennady Druzenko co-founded the Pirogov First Volunteer Mobile Hospital, a non-governmental organization which provides medical care in the conflict zone to Ukrainian service persons and civilians. For its first four years of activity on the ground, the mobile hospital has provided medical care for more than 50,000 patients. He's also involved in redrafting the Ukrainian constitution, a process initiated by Yulia Tymoshenko, former prime minister of Ukraine and currently a frontrunner in their next presidential election. Druzenko was recently hosted by Indiana University's Center for Constitutional Democracy. He brought a collection of original Orthodox icons hand-painted on repurposed ammo boxes to be displayed and sold as a fundraiser for the Pirogov First Volunteer Mobile Hospital. While he was here, Gennady Druzenko joined IU Geography professor Elizabeth Cullen Dunn for a conversation in the WFIU studios. Welcome, Gennady. Thank you very much. My honor to be here. I would like to start by talking about the art exhibition that you have come to Bloomington with, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about what it is and how these paintings were made. Oh, great. That is really a unique project in the art world because is it unites charity, exhibition, something like uh, religion art because the pictures painted by my fellow artist icons. And the feature is that the very traditional icons, which rooted in about 1,000 Ukrainian and even older Byzantine tradition, now painted on the armor boxes, which originally contained bullets, shells, and things like that on the front line. So it was invited to say by occasion, when we traveled the front line to help our soldiers and local civilians in second part of 2014, the friend of mine take this fragment of this armor box in the hand and say, oh, it's so similar to the traditional things on which icons are painted. So he tried, and the first exhibition was installed in the St. Sophia, the main, most famous Ukrainian cathedral in Kyiv, in February 2015. And from then, we travel throughout the world with these paintings. We sell them, and uh, most of the uh, costs we get supported our mobile hospital. So that is very symbolic transformation. Somebody which contain tools of death bullets, shells, rockets, missiles, through the arts became symbol of resurrection, as every orthodox icon finally is. But even more, it transgressed the symbolism and gather money for medics who take care about people, who treat injured people, and uh, bring not just medical care to this tragic part of Ukraine violated by the 
five years in a row won now. But as well, some hope because people, especially local people, feel that they are not forgotten. Somebody care about them and travel to them, provide them with sometime health care on the level they have never experienced it before the war because our hospital, and it would be next story, that is really huge, maybe most ambitious project, volunteer, not governmental project, which unite now about 500 medical staff from the sanitar, from the very low level to professors of medicine, doctors of medicine, so some very uh, well-recognized doctors in Ukraine. So that people every month we send 20 to 30 medics to the eastern Ukraine for the one month service. They work for free, they are volunteers. They live, some of them, in the military units, which we support other in the near frontline civilian hospitals and provide what they could do, medical care. And sometimes like a, just psychological care as well, because people live, especially local people who do not rotate it like uh, military guys, who lives almost five years under stress. So we implemented some small projects and that because of this continuing stress, the level of other illnesses are quite higher, considerably higher than in the rest of Ukraine. So that is how art volunteers and some humanitarian missions intertweeted for years now, especially last year when the donors in Ukraine and outside Ukraine became far more modest in <laughs> supply and money mm -hmm. uh, to support projects like our one. We counted and at least in 2014, we gather about 70% of money for our activity on the east through this sell the icon save the lives project so now we show it in the bloomington and now exhibition travel when we are speaking under the way to the valparaiso and then we plan already plan it the set exhibition in chicago in ukrainian parish so what how we travel and try to get money for our activity so I think many people in the United States have very little idea about why this war is being fought and why it's dragging on so long. So maybe you could start by telling us how the war broke out and who's fighting and for what. Yeah, it was for a short time in 2014 in the focus of the global mass media, but now it's rather forgotten war for the ordinary people. The case is that it's very different uh, self-understanding of Ukrainians and Russian understanding of Ukrainians as such. We are Ukrainians believe that we are separate nation with our like about 1,000 year tradition, our own language, our own culture, our own traditions and so on and so forth. For a long time, for ages, Ukraine was divided between our neighbor state. Polish state, Russian Empire, some part was uh, occupied or uh, owned by t Turk uh, Osman Empire. Before that, Ukraine was part of the Lithuanian Grand 
Duce, uh, but finally to have a state and to be a nation that is not the same things. You could to be the nation without have your own state. Finally in Europe a lot of modern nations lived in the Austrian Empire or French Empire and things like that. So uh, at least from the middle of 19th century Ukraine paved the way to the freedom. That it was humanitarian movement for the Ukrainian separation from Russian Empire. When Russian Empire collapsed in the beginning of the 20th century, in the 1917, we have for a while, for about three years, independent Ukrainian Republic. But it was occupied at the time it was rather Russian Bolsheviks army. So that Ukrainian independent movement continued in the 20th century in the both Western Ukraine, which was for three decades part of the Polish state, and bigger or central Ukraine, which was the part of the Soviet Union. And formally it was even founding republic, one of the four founding republics of the Soviet Union in 1922. But it was like a rather decorations and real uh, independence or like a states in the United States. It, it wasn't never the states, it was like a province of the Soviet Union. And, and then uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed in the world, uh, Ukraine finally gets an independence. Uh, about more than 90% of people who took part in the referendum voted in favor of independent state. And so we start our independent journey in 1999. Uh, but maybe for some Russian elites it was like a not a real change in the history, but some uh, temporary status of Ukraine. Because we speak language which is quite close to Russian. Everybody in Ukraine speak Russian or at least understand Russian without any problem. So we have very intertweeted history. And even more, Russian believes that they originated from the Kiev and Rus, from the Ukrainian territory, current Ukrainian territory. They even have a concept that Kiev, the Stolitz, uh, capital of Ukraine, is the mother of all Russian cities and towns. So that is something we could compare with the Jerusalem for Jews, or maybe Kosovo for Serbs, like a sacral place which is a uh, spiritual birth of nation, head place. That is from the Russian point of view. And then when Ukraine uh, step by step became more and more really independent and shifted more and more toward Europe, uh, we have a very tragic period under the previous president Yanukovych. It declared for years European integration strategy. But one day in the autumn, in the fall 2013, said, okay, we stop the European integration, won't sign the association agreement with the European Union, and shift, turn to Russia. That's why people went to the street and the squares, said we do not want to back to Russia. And this popular riot now known as a revolution of dignity. The first protesters who were the students was brutally beaten by the special police forces. 
millions of people came the next day on the square and three months later on the Yanukovych was fled Ukraine to the Russia. Then very same days Russia started occupation of Crimea, Ukrainian maybe most pro-Russian region but anyway so formally in the end of February 2014 Russians start to use the force against any international law against some uh, basic norm of the UN statute and provisions like that. The first stage of this occupation, I mean occupation of Crimea, was more or less peaceful uh, since Ukrainian, uh, after the radical change of power, Ukrainian institution was very weak uh, and almost destroyed and our international partners beg Ukraine to not use the force to answer the Russian aggression. But when we lost Crimea in such a way, Putin started the next stage of intervention in the eastern Ukraine, in Ukrainian Donbass, which is a region, but not in just Donbass, but as well as Kharkov, most Russian-speaking and places which have most links with Russia and the Soviet heritage. So it was in the form like a local people right against the pro-Western power in Kyiv, but in fact, now we know it was sponsored by the Special Service of Russia, FSB, Federal Service of Security. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, State Security Bureau. St- st- state Security Bureau, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and Ukrainians, uh, not so far, uh, government of Ukraine, which still hesitated at the time, but the people take arms in their hand and a lot of friends of mine go to the front line to defend our independence and integrity. So uh, formally in April 2014 started the so-called anti-terrorist operation when the government decided to use armed forces some special services and police to stop this pro-Russian intervention um, sponsored by Russia. Now we know that a lot of leaders of this riot, to say, was not just sponsored or instructed by Russian instruction, but was Russian as such. Notorious uh, Mr. Girkin, who led the riot and committed a lot of crime against humanity before came into Ukraine, fought in the Caucasian and Chechen war and is a colonel of FSB, uh, like that's Federal Security Bureau. So we have a very hot 2014 years when the Ukrainian people was so united to defend our country. Some of them go to the defended forces. Some go like volunteers to defend the country. And others supported them like our project through some humanitarian missions or some uh, volunteer supply of the defending forces because at the time they was very bad equipped, very mm, bad supplied and so on and so forth. 
we have a great historical parallel for this moment when the United States starts this own war for independence known as American Revolution against well-organized, well-equipped British forces. It was a quite similar case when the people, like in the movie Patriot with Mel Gibson, self-organized and tried to defend their villages, their land, their farms, and so on and so forth. But it seems that it might be a little more complicated than the American parallel, because as I understand it, Ukraine has always been linguistically divided, that the western half of the country is primarily Ukrainian-speaking, and there's a heavy contingent of native Russian speakers in the east. Uh, in, and in Crimea. In so, fact, that, that, is not, that is just true to some extent. Uh, for the last, uh, the last uh, surveys so, uh, shows that more than 60% of Ukrainians, both Russian-speaking and Ukrainian-speaking, just support that the just Ukrainian language should be one official language in Ukraine. So my uh, own experience, my own example is quite sound. I was born in the Russian-speaking family, who my grandfather and grandmother speak Ukrainian, but to get the education, my father and mother should shift it to the Russian as their first language. So until the 20s, I understand Ukrainian because it's quite close to Russian, but never spoke in that then. After that, when Ukrainian independence came uh, to us, and I reconsider it, our heritage, our self-understanding, our separate place in the world, and start to speak Ukrainian. And a lot of people like me shifted their linguistic identity. And now most of Ukrainian bilingual, at least in Kyiv, you never think about in which languages you vis-a-vis speak to you. Uh, Western Ukraine, yes, it is far more Ukrainian-speaking by default, but surprisingly, the capital of Western Ukraine, Lviv, became capital of Ukrainian nationalism, if you want, became far more Russian-speaking because it became very popular touristic destination. And to sell the, some goods, services, people speak in languages of clients, of consumers. But what is really important... On the front line, that is a very different war from the Yugoslavian one, when you understand that Croatian on the one side, Bosnians on the other, and Serbs on the third side, and fight against each other. I saw on the front line on the Ukrainian side a lot of Russians, at least up to 50% of Russian-speaking guys, who fought and still fight for freedom, for independence, for state of fundamentally different model of interrelation between human being and state. In Russia, you know that the state is like a god because they are far more pro-statist, to say it, love the statehood. Then we are Ukrainian who are far more freedom-oriented. So the, there is not like ethnic, uh, in any case, it is no ethnic conflict, no religious conflict, no linguistic conflict. That is a clash of values when from one part of the front line people believe in state like a Soviet Union, strong, but not human, in fact. 
On the other hand, people believe far more in the Western values like uh, freedom, like uh, um, human rights, like uh, self, self-sufficient guys who build up their own destiny. From this point of view, we really fight not just for Ukrainian independence and Ukrainian government, but for whole Europe with these fundamental values, which are now sometimes more declared than uh, really implement in the real politics. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is Gennady Druzenko, a Ukrainian lawyer, politician, and co-founder of the Pirogov First Volunteer Mobile Hospital. He's speaking with Elizabeth Cullen Dunn, professor of geography at Indiana University Bloomington. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what do you think motivates the separatists in the Donbass region? Why would people who are nominally Ukrainian citizens fight to become a separatist region? Good question. Yeah, I think there are at least two answers. The first of them is huge nostalgia on Soviet time because Donbass is a region of miners mainly. The huge industry was established there before the Russian Revolution in the end of 19th and beginning of 20th century, heavy industry. By the way, established by Belgian and uh, English investors, then uh, developed by the Soviet uh, government. And people throughout the whole Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, came to Donbass to get the lucrative job. It was risky, it was difficult, heavy job, but it was paid, for example, five, six times more than ordinary engineer in Kiev, in the capital. So people uh, still in their mind this like a golden age when they was very privileged part of the Soviet society. Now this Soviet system just died throughout the whole area from Vladivostok to maybe Baltic states. But the Russian propaganda that the TV, which in the region was and still is most Russian channels, some mass media persuade people that when they back to Russia, it will be something back to the Soviet Union. But that is just a trick. That is the first reason they believe that return to under Russian control will be, in fact, return them to the golden age of the miners' profession. The second part is, again, Russian propaganda, but from the other side of the Russian propaganda. After this revolution of dignity, as we know, this popular riot in Kiev, most of local opinion makers, Russian mass media, persuaded the people that the some junta went to the power in Kiev. They will push all Ukrainian citizens just speaking Ukrainian, just 
celebrate Bandera, who is famous symbol of Ukrainian Stepan nationalism. Bandera. Stepan Bandera, yeah, mm-hmm. who is symbol. And since like that, people was really afraid. But that is nothing to do with the truth, because even in Ukrainian government, we have one of the most influential minister, minister of interior affairs, who is ethnical, at least half Armenian and never speak Ukrainian still. So uh, people brainwashed and they have a real nostalgia about the time, Soviet time, when they was a very privileged class or part of the Soviet society. Like, by the way, in Crimea, when Crimea was the most popular and most fashion resort for whole Soviet Union, it's about maybe more than 20 millions of people. The Southern California of the Soviet Union. Oh. All palm trees and bikinis right on the beach. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to talk a little bit about how Russia has been involved in the conflict in Donbass. And they have not been overtly involved. Russia denies that it's there at all, which is not entirely believable. Actually, not believable at all. But maybe you could talk about the invasion of the little green men and about the ways that Russia has moved weaponry into that region. Yeah. uh, Can you explain who who the little green men are? Oh, uh, yeah. In fact, originally they was named very respectful green men, yeah, who who show respect because they very disciplined was in Crimea. They is... uh, especially Russian forces, uh, without any signs on their camouflage, on their military form. So if you saw the real military, American military, in the well-trained military, you know how they different from the ordinary civilian peoples. They're disciplined, they walk in other ways, do things in other way. So that in Crimea, it was obvious that not just regular uh, Russian forces took part in this occupation of Crimea, but that some elite Russian forces... So these were elite Russian forces with no insignia, no Russian flags on them, no indication that they were from Russia, but they were clearly professional military forces and not the irregulars that the, yeah, yeah, that because, the Ukrainian separatists uh, be, were. Because it is so clear uh, how guerrillas forces behave and the regular forces who well-trained, who well-equipped, who understand each other, are very good coordinated. But finally, the Putin recognizes that they use uh, the forces of special operations, a official name. And he awarded a lot of people with a special medal for the returning of the Crimea. So now it's not a secret and not something we don't know. Even Putin, the Russian president, recognized use of these guys, at least in Crimea. In the um, Donbass, the situation was a bit different because within Crimea, the Russian had stronghold their own uh, marina base. So they had an opportunity to transfer their special forces to Sevastopol, which is the base, and start invasion from there. In the Ukrainian Donbass, it was another type of operation, far more KGB-style operation, when that maybe CIA in the America would be, who is not behave like a typical military man, but who could organize well provocation, 
to destabilize the situation and things like that. So, so you're saying that what has happened is that the Russians have backed the separatists in Donbass as a means of destabilizing the government of Ukraine. It is, but they supported separatists and uh, acted through their, like a special agent to say, federal security bureau style, not like a military. You know, that is quite a different, uh, different way. But anyway, uh, it was just phase stage, phase months of this riot on the Donbass. I remember a lot of people who was delivered to the Donetsk or Donbass who couldn't orient which street is, is or that. So they was from the Rostov-na-Donu, that's a Russian city, or maybe, yeah, city. Yeah, the city across the river. Yeah, across the border, yeah. So that uh, it was um, clear involvement, but not military on the face stage as such, regular military. The regular military came to Donbass, to my mind, in the summer 2014, when Ukrainian forces, which at the time actively were deliberating Donbass, step by step was surrounded and shooted by regular Russian forces. And we uh, called it Ilovaisk tragedy, when the hundreds of Ukrainian military servicemen was just shot and killed in this, I don't know how to say it, went from surrounded by yeah, the they yeah, surrounded. Yeah, they were surrounded kettled yeah, yeah, kettled, by, yeah kettled by the kettled, Russian yeah, military indeed, and indeed, then shot. indeed indeed so now we have a lot of proofs of russian uh, direct involvement in this war because sometimes ukrainian soldiers captured the people with the document of the russian forces and our president demonstrated them in the international organization like un or the council of europe and the other end, the war is quite costly adventure. You couldn't just go to the shop and buy, okay, you could buy bullets in some shops, but you could buy a tank and armored machine and missiles and things like that. But to my mind, from the both sides, more tanks involved than, the, for example, Germany have altogether. So that is for sure that you need state-supported or state-organized supply of equipment of special armored machines. Yeah. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the equipment. I mean, one of the ways that the world came to know that Russia was involved in this was when the Donbass separatists shot down a Malaysian airliner. Yeah. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how that happened. As I understand it, it was an accident. Uh, it seems so that it was uh, shot by accidents because Ukrainian special services recorded their telephone calls to each other and they believed that that was Ukrainian, Ukrainian jet. Ah, so yeah. the separatists thought it was a Ukrainian yeah. jet, shot at it, and found out only later that it was a Malaysian yeah, passenger Yeah, that it was a civilian aircraft. Malaysian passenger jet. But the equipment was so sophisticated that there is no even theoretical possibilities that some miners, for example, right, miners, get in somewhere in the street and could use it because it is very special Soviet-style 
missile which named Bukt, Buk, like uh, one type of the tree. A birch which, tree. A yeah. birch tree, which could uh, reach up to 10 kilometers high. That they could shoot an airliner down from such a great yeah, height. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it had to be a state sponsor. And now, now uh, we have a results uh, of the independent international uh, investigation, which led by Netherlands, uh, that is no from which military unit, uh, the, in which way this special missiles machine came and returned to Russia. Who organized it, who is responsible, who gave the order to shot. So now it is quite clear for everybody who wants to know. And I just want to stress out that it's not Ukrainian investigation, that is international investigation led by the Netherlands, who is not like anti-Russian by default. Gennady Druzenko, lawyer, politician, and activist, in conversation with IU geography professor Elizabeth Cullen Dunn. Druzenko was recently in Bloomington as a guest of Indiana University's Center for Constitutional Democracy. listening to Profiles from WFIU. One of the interesting things about the conflicts in Crimea and in Donbass is that this doesn't seem to be the first time that a newly powerful Russia has been reaching out to try and capture states that were part of the Soviet Union. In 2008, Russia-backed separatists in the Georgian province of South Ossetia. And to this day, the Russian 56th Army occupies South Ossetia. I know that also Russia has been very involved in Transnistria, which is a breakaway province of Moldova. So what do you think the Russian strategy is here? What are they trying to achieve by backing these separatist movements and destabilizing newly independent governments? Good question. Uh, we need to recall Putin's phrase that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the biggest catastrophe on the 20th century, that Russia should be a type of empire. So that empire have their own parts, their own province and some dependent territories. I believe that, especially in Ukrainian case, the Kremlin believes that Ukrainians are like independent territory of Russia. This position strengthens it by, again, Russian trust that they originated from Ukraine, now Ukraine territory. And maybe another argument could be put on the table uh, that any success of post-Soviet Republic, independent of Russian cooperation with Russia or Russian control, that is a challenge to the Putin's regime, especially so big country like Ukraine is. Ukraine have about 40 million population, people lives in Ukraine. So that it's like set part of whole Russian population. If Ukraine succeed in its efforts to be European, uh, modern, rich country, it would be big question for Russian people is they on the right way with led by the Putin's regime. 
Yeah, and all of this seems to be sparked by this turn towards Europe, towards the European Union and towards joining NATO by Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova, these countries which are seeking to orient themselves to the West rather than back towards the Russian Federation. That's correct, but that's... Now that is quite popular joke in Ukraine. Nobody have done more for Ukrainian pro-Western Kurz than Putin. Yeah, did. exactly. Yeah. Because uh, before this, uh, before 2014, when this Russian aggression started in Ukraine, most of Ukrainian regarded Russians, brother nation, speak Russians, the intercultural links was very strong. Finally, uh, when the people w were asked about some geostrategic choice between the Russian, like some form of Eurasian Union and European Union, it was about 50-50%. But now it's clear pro-Western choice now that about 70% of Ukrainians believe that Russia is an aggressor state, that more than 50 from 50 to 60 percent are ready to vote in favor of accession to the European Union and up to 50 percent want uh, Ukraine to be a part of NATO. It never been before. So trying to stop Western movement of Ukraine, in fact, Putin just accelerated it. Yeah, although it seems that NATO and the European Union are less enthusiastic about expansion indeed, indeed, than they indeed. were before. Indeed, indeed, especially uh, European Union because they used to trade quite lucratively with the Russian, especially German. And you know now the German position is twofold. On one hand, they blame Russians for breach of international law, for aggression in Ukraine, do not recognize annexion of Crimea. But on the other hand, they built up this pipe from uh, Russia, gas pipe. Yeah, it's a it's a natural gas pipeline. And yeah. so Russia now has the capacity. Nord Stream, to... Nord Stream, yeah, Nord Stream 2. And now Russia has the capacity to turn off the heat in Germany. I mean, Germany is dependent yeah. on Russia for its energy source. Yeah, so they believe that Russians all need German money, so they supply it anyway, gas and to some extent oil. In Ukraine, knows that for Russian, it's not like a business uh, as usual. For Russian, it's rather energy weapons, because I remember the winter of 2000, maybe five, when the Russians just turned it off this pipeline. So <laughs> Ukraine. Had no gas. Had no, had no gas, gas for weeks. So the Russian is not a reliable supplier and contract. But anyway, a lot of countries in Europe still want to trade with Russia. Over, moreover, some of right-wing parties, which now became more and more popular in the countries of European Union, uh, clearly sponsored by the Putin's regime. Now we know that Salvini, Matteo Salvini in Italy, is a friend of Putin's um, Orban, uh, Viktor Orban in the, the prime minister of Hungary, great friend of Putin. And another guy, Erdogan, leader of Turkey. That I, uh, they have a more complicated yeah, more, more complicated, complicated but that, what, what is interesting, yeah. 
that last year the Putin met with Erdogan, met with Erdogan, more than with any other leaders in the world. Yeah, uh, over the Syrian issue. Over the, first of all, for sure. For sure over they, the, over, and over exports, Turkish exports into Russia. But one of the things that has been really interesting to me about Ukraine's struggle for independence is how difficult it has been to form a competent government. And uh, Yanukovych was clearly a bandit, criminal, and a thief, criminal, yeah, a criminal. And I remember when Yanukovych was overthrown and fled to Russia, and they opened up his house. It was extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, there, everything palace, was palace. <laughs> covered in gold, and I think there was a model pirate ship, which was actually a dining room, and swans sailing by, and golden toilets. The whole extravaganza, dictator, dictator chic, yeah. So in the wake of Yanukovych, the chocolate king, Poroshenko, has come to power. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the problems that Poroshenko has had forming a government which could actually function. That's correct. That's correct. Both of your statements are correct. Poroshenko is far more smarter than Yanukovych, but... The the bar was not high. (laughs) Yeah, but unfortunately, to my mind... He's still first of all businessman who tried to earn as much money as possible. That's in in his past life he was an oligarch, right? Before yeah, he, he is. He's a, a typical oligarch. He owned huge business. Uh, he's the biggest uh, player on the uh, like a candy or conditor uh, market. Candy and chocolate. Yeah. Candy and chocolate market, not just in Ukraine. I, I believe in whole at least Eastern Europe. He is often uh, huge, some produce or rather assemble some cars in Ukraine. Even he produced some military ships, small military ships for Ukrainian army. So um, for sure that is not European or Western way and clear conflict of interests. Because uh, what we know about our current president, even though he did a lot of quite patriotic and useful things. First of all, he do his business. Half a day he work like a oligarch, huge businessman, and just second part of the day as a president of Ukraine. I think he played his role in Ukrainian history uh, more or less positive because at least he has a diplomatic background. He speak pure English. He could at least create some to be honest, weak, but Western coalition, pro-Ukrainian coalition. And that is a difference between our situation and Georgian situation in 2008. Yeah, but on the other hand, he missed the chance to rebirth or reestablish Ukraine, which was fantastic in 2014. Now, when we see the social surveys, we see some very interesting phenomenon. Ukrainian people really proud of their citizenship. About more than 70 percent, that is quite surprising in the divided country. Ukrainian people are ready to defend their land, their country, even sacrifice their life. And volunteer movement was really impressive in Ukraine. But they now hugely mistrust their state institutions. First of all, government, president, cabinet of ministers, and the parliament. 
I read uh, recently that the trust in government in the United States in the historical law about 20%, but in Ukraine, less than 5% uh, trust government and less than 7% of Ukrainians trust president and the cabinet of ministers. So it is very difficult to govern the country if people do not trust institutions as such. That's why even though he made some real achievements in politics and some he finally he signed the association agreement he with the European with the European Union yeah he achieved free visa regime with the European Union uh, liberated visa regime we still couldn't work freely in the European Union but we could travel for a short time without visa to the European Union to the European country but still what we need that comprehensive reconstruction of the state of the government as such that is the main challenge to the current ukraine how to return trust in institution to people how to make people feel that the institution not something from the other world but their own institutions well and the institutions of ukrainian government have been notoriously disorderly um i've seen video of fist fights breaking out on the floor of parliament um there was a meeting of i think it was of cabinet ministers where people started throwing glasses of water at oh, each yeah, other oh yeah that was like to to occasion member of ukrainian government <laughs> yeah uh, so Quite i can emotional. imagine that this kind of disorder makes trust in the government as a regulator of civil behavior very challenging Uh, I think that is not the main problem because for example in South Korea where the government far more trusted that like a fight in the parliament not a rare case the problem is that the government is very corrupted and do not serve the people so that the question about efficiency and some human oriented or state oriented governments In fact, it served to very small group of people who named oligarchs and big like a uh, member of government who are in Ukraine. Most of them are quite very rich people, far more richer than <laughs> US congressmen. Mm-hmm. And that is a challenge. That's why now when we entered the year of double election in Ukraine, presidential election and parliamentary election, the main and more principal question to the candidates what are you going to do with the system okay we change one president for another some mps for another mps but what change it in the system as such what change it between interrelation of the institutions and the ukrainian people because unlike in 19th when the people just follow the government the institution trust them interested in their activity now people feel that it is the people who defend this country the country ukrainian statehood survived it because of very brave people participation in this war but they need far more trusted and devoted government You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. 
Our guest is Ukrainian lawyer, politician, and activist, Gennady Druzenko. He's speaking with Elizabeth Cullen Dunn, IU professor of geography. You've backed Yulia Timoshenko, who has run twice, I understand, before. But Timoshenko's taken a really interesting approach to engaging the Ukrainian population. She wears her hair very famously in a crown of braids, which... No more. Oh, she's given up the crown of braids. That was a, a reference to Ukrainian folk culture. Yeah, indeed. And she has been very adamantly... Ukrainian nationalist. Would you say that Timoshenko is a populist? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it is like a reasonable populist. Because a reasonable have, yeah, populist. Yeah, now we have a far more populistic, <laughs> unreasonable uh, populist and uh, other candidates. For yeah. example, Leshko, who is a typical populist who just promised whatever he wants. But why I back the Timoshenko in this campaign? She is not really some a new face in our political scene, no, not new figure. She is quite really controversial figure <laughs> with some good things uh, and good achievements as well as failures in uh, her background. She was the prime minister from... Yeah, twice. She was during the Yushchenko presidential tenure. Uh-huh. She was twice prime minister of Ukraine. But... For me, it is very important that she promised as her presidential program to reestablish Ukrainian state as such. What I said, she called it New Deal, very familiar for American heirs. But in fact, uh, she spoke about and she speak about the comprehensive constitutional reform, which should improve the government architecture when the responsibility and some tools, some competences should be linked to each other. And on the other hand, as uh, it's very interesting proposal to institutionalize uh, participation of the civil society in the governing of the country. It is a lot of uh, discussable proposals. There is no uh, draft of the new constitution so far. But the idea to reestablish constitutions through the inclusive constitutional process, in a word, I call it, now Ukrainian constitutions start from the word. The parliament of Ukraine on behalf of Ukrainian people, but we need to change like American one, with the people of Ukraine. And if we could change constitution in such a way, it would be great success and really a birth of the really independent Ukrainian state, not post-Soviet transitional republic. And that the goal of this constitutional reform, how will it change the role of the president? Oh, that is very interesting. She promised to cancel this institution. To, so, to, to cancel be the, the presidency yeah, of Ukraine. To, to be the last president in Ukrainian history, if she wins. <laughs> And uh, she is uh, a proponent of the Germany style of strong model of councillor, uh, prime minister. It should be supported by the majority in the parliament. So maybe uh, for Ukraine, which is really very diverse, that is a better way to rule the country because when president from Donetsk came to the Kiev, it is very good just for one region. Uh, 
Poroshenko from Vinnytsia, it flourished now. Like before that, it was Kuchma from the Dnepropetrovsk. It was favorite city and favorite region. So this offer is so fundamental and so challenging that for me it was the argument because last summer I got invitation from the Center for Constitutional Democracy of the Indiana University and even packed my trunk and uh, was ready to fly it here. <laughs> but uh, a couple of meetings with Yulia Tymoshenko uh, changed my mind at least for this year. She asked me to stay in Ukraine at least for a year and to help her to promote this constitutional reform. So that is what I am really interested in, believe in, and really hope to implement in Ukraine, by the way, in cooperation with uh, American schoolers. At the Center for Constitutional Democracy yeah. here at Indiana University. Indeed, indeed, yeah. yeah. And the idea of rewriting the constitutions that were hastily written in the early 90s is one that is also spreading to other countries in the former Eastern Bloc, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. In fact, our Western partners have more or less stable constitution, but it was changed at least in Hungary quite recently and quite significantly, to some extent in Poland, to my mind. At least the role of the constitutional tribunal changed quite significantly under the current coalition. But they are workable, and at least people in this country believe that the constitution is main regulator of the affairs between. In Ukraine, the problem is the constitution that is studied, that is quoted in the parliament, but the real life has nothing common with the constitution. So that is really some type of society which is opposite to the rule of law. We rule it by the tradition, by some personal relation, but whatever sin, but not by the constitution. Because the people do not feel that like a constitution was created, established by themselves. So it's by a, some... a question of legitimacy then. Yeah, that's factual regime, not the yeah. formal legitimacy. Yes, you're, you're right. So that to govern effectively, even you are smart, you are quite uh, honest, you need to be legitimate in the eyes of your fellow citizens. One of the interesting things I have heard about you is that in addition to being a constitutional scholar and a humanitarian and an activist, that you are also a reality TV star. Oh, <laughs> that is, that is it. Uh, I, I, I used to appear it on TV with some, uh, mostly in the recent years, because our project especially in the early years of our war, our defense of the country was quite popular and maybe hundreds of TV reports was produced. Uh, maybe because I'm not a medic, I'm like every lawyer, I more speak than <laughs> treat the people. Uh, I was like a spokesman of these uh, hundreds of the fellow doctors, fellow medics. And really last year I took part in one TV show when we tried to get millions of Ukrainian, hryvnas, Ukrainian currency for our project. Uh, so you were, you were competing for a Yeah, a charitable competing. Price? Uh, unfortunately, we false, uh, but so, we but got to the five uh, The finalists. final five? Yeah. yeah. So on this TV show, it was all Ukrainian politicians, as I understand it. And 
one politician was voted out of the House every week, and you made it to the final five? No. <laughs> not, not quite. In Ukraine, really, uh, according to the surveys, again, 70-plus percent get information about politics from the TV. So TV still dominated, even though that the influence of TV declined in favor of the social networks and Facebooks, YouTube, and things like that. But anyway, to promote and to push forward your agenda, your view, you should appear on TV because there is no choice. The problem is that all popular TV channels are owned by the oligarchs. So that is a, a dilemma for everybody who wants to be politician in Ukraine. How to appear on TV and survive as an independent figure. Mm -hmm. So, so I have no exact answer how to do that. <laughs> At least uh, I tried through this, our volunteer project. Uh, but now we, at least me as personal, I positioned myself like an ally of Yulia Tymoshenko in this constitutional process. So let's see. Uh, let's see that the uh, presidential election is approaching, that it's about... March the 31st. March 31st. And the second stage will be on April 21st. And let's see about my personal future. Come I to the Indiana for academic study. Or <laughs> well, you're always welcome here at Indiana University. Thank you so much. And sorry, guys, for my not perfect English. <laughs> Thank you. Gennady Druzenko. Lawyer, politician, activist, and co-founder of the Pirogov First Volunteer Mobile Hospital. Druzenko was recently in Bloomington as a guest of Indiana University's Center for Constitutional Democracy. He's been speaking with IU Professor of Geography, Elizabeth Cullen Dunn. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.